This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. What is a hash? A hash is basically you take an arbitrarily large object, apply some mathematical functions, get a fixed size response, which is unique to some extent. That's a rigorous statement and like all rigorous statements it's useless. Right? Because that doesn't really help you to understand what you can use it for um, the corollary is what's important about it. So where could you maybe have seen hash, hashes? If you download something important, say Bitcoin call software or an operating system, you download the file, and then next to that file you have a usually 32 byte um, long number. Right? And the nice thing is, since it doesn't matter how large the input is, you always generate a fixed length, usually 32 bytes or 64 bytes output, which is unique in the sense that um, in order to have a collusion, so in order to have two different sets of data produce the same output, the, the exact same 32 byte number, uh, that's lifetime of the universe unlikely. And there is no way to predict it. Right? I'll come to that in a, in a second. And mostly what you can use it for is, no matter how large the input is, just by comparing the hash function, the hash um, that you calculate yourself, to the hash that you expect to get, you can verify the integrity of the large object. You can verify the integrity that not a single bit has been changed of an entire disk full of data or of an entire operating system that you download by simply manually comparing those 32 bytes. Let a quick question, just before you head on. Once you create the hash, is that hash gone for like is that number gone forever? Like it, it goes up to a database that you can no longer use it again, or unfortunately because it's so random. No, it's so random. Then it could come back. It could come back, and there is something called the the uh, pigeonhole problem, uh, which is basically just if the if the different number of inputs, if there are more possible inputs, then there are possible outputs. Right? So I said gigabytes of data compared to 32 bytes. So there, there have to be um, different, different inputs that just generate the same hash. But in order to find one of those, you can calculate the amount of, um, of, of power, of electricity, of computational resources that you would need to put into, um, into calculating enough so that the resolution, if they find a second one which generates the same hash, then that is impossible. That would require more electricity than has ever been spent or ever been generated by the sun since it started burning. <laughs> right? This is this concept of lifetime of the universe unlike. So yeah, it's possible. It's absolutely possible to have two hashes. And actually, yeah. hmm? so mathematically possible. But mathematically possible. Yeah. And depending on the hash function, this does happen. This is a, a nice anecdote actually. There, one of the of the older hash functions, there has been a collision generated. Uh, it was char one, I guess. Has been rec has recently been uh, been cracked or cracked as in Google managed to find two inputs that generate the same output. This has led to I believe twelve bitcoins. Of course, uh, this is one one example of a smart contract. Because <laughs> uh, even though this has nothing to do with the Bitcoin blockchain, there was for a long-standing um, um, challenge on the Bitcoin blockchain where the smart contract was not proof that you are the owner of the private key and then you can move the funds, where, but where the, the smart contract was give me two different inputs that generate the same MD5 output and you get 25 Bitcoin. Right? 
This has been on there for a long time. It was not Google that claimed it. It was the one who was fastest after Google released the news. Um, <laughs> right, but, but this is, so, this is what, what, what hashes do. Okay. Why is that important? You have the avalanche effect. You don't really have to understand why this is, but it's just um, if, you, if you have an input and you flip any bit, the output will, yield, will be completely different. There is no resemblance and you cannot predict in which way it will be different. Which, which can be used for all kinds of different things. For example, if you use a little convolution. Uh, thoughts we used in previous blockchains like, like Git or whatever. Um, there's just the concept of um, you have some starting block. This is one of the, the data sets that you have. You generate the hash on there. And the next block um, has as one of the fields in its header has the hash of the previous one. And then it's a block again of which you should take the, the, um, the hash. And so on and so forth. This is what, what binds one block to the previous one. If you, if you generate, if you change anything in any block, in any early block, it would change all the hashes for subsequent ones. Not only the, the one hash, the one block that you change, that will be changed, but since the previous its reference to the next one, all the blocks would change. And the integrity would be lost. Very basically, if a block, the next one references the hash of the previous block. It doesn't reference the previous block, that's not technically correct, um, but you reference the hash of the previous one. What else can you use it for? Also, transaction IDs um, are hashes of a transaction. This is where it's used. But uh, one more thing which is used for, which is why we have this thing here, uh, is in mining. Since it's totally unpredictable what the hash will be, uh, you can use that in order to prove that you spent electricity on getting a result. This is not new in, in Bitcoin, this proof of work. Uh, this has been used in Hashcash in mid-90s. Hashcash was a system invented by Adam Beck as a result of remailers. Remailers was a concept invented by um, Hal Finney, who was also the second person ever mining Bitcoin, so all people are the same. Remailers were, when email came up, um, a way to anonymize your, uh, your mail. You would just send your mail somewhere, and it would be sent further on from there with a different email header. So, if you, if you, if you su supply um, a, a remailer, how do you ensure that it's not filled with spam? You just force the one who generates, uh, who wants to use your service, all that should be anonymous. You force the one to, to, um, to generate an email, so the email that you should forward should hash to something where the hash is smaller than some number. Right? The, the hash is a, um, is a number, essentially. It would be shown as, as hex, whatever, 64 characters hex, but it's a, it's a number. And if you say, okay, I want this number to be smaller than some threshold, you force the one that sends the mail to just put some arbitrary string at the end of his mail, which he just goes through different versions of that arbitrary string, until the hash of the total mail is lower than, than some threshold. By that, you force the one that wants to use your remailer to spend electricity, to spend resources, to actually spend money, provably spend money on, on calculating that, um, that hash. Is that understood? Because that's the, that's the base concept of mining, as we use it nowadays. 
the idea is is really just nobody gets that money, right? It's, the money is just provably lost, which which is essential for for having an anonymous system. If you want to be paid, it can no longer be anonymous. So if somebody wants to use your email to the mail that he that he types, you don't care if it takes thirty seconds longer in order to calculate the 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 this arbitrary string, which is then called a nonce. 30 seconds don't change anything, but if you want to mass spam mails with 30 seconds, change everything. Okay, this is what nowadays used in, in Bitcoin as well. A block in the header has a nonce, so there is just a field which can take any arbitrary value in order to generate different hashes. And the, in order to, to be a valid block, the hash has to be below a threshold. This threshold is regularly, every 2016 blocks, which is roughly every two weeks, um, adjusted so, so that on average you get one new block every 10 minutes. Right? So you, you can um, move that arbitrarily. That's about it. So all that those machines do is they don't solve a complex mathematical puzzle, um, as, you, as you usually see it. They just very quickly go through different nonces to calculate the hash, and compare that hash with the threshold. You can calculate hashes with pen and paper. There is a very nice YouTube video, it's 10 minutes long. Uh, it's been time-lapsed by a lot uh, to calculate one hash. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was something like 6 hours in total. So you get something like 1.5 hashes per day if, um, as a human. What do those do? Uh, depending on this. 14 kilo hash maybe, depending on the cards. Per second. How many cards you have in there. Yeah, per, per second. Yeah. <laughs> so 14,000 hashes per, per second, per card. <laughs> um, and it's really just a, a game of the fastest. There are different hash functions. Bitcoin uses um, double shot 156. Others are Kryptonite, which is for example used in, in Monero. They have different advantages, advantages and disadvantages, basically different trade-offs. Double chart frame 56 is a very simple one. It's very easy to produce dedicated hardware to solving those. While we have ASICs, Kryptonite has a different um, trade-off. It's very memory intensive. So in order to build dedicated machines, you would need to buy memory from Digitech. Right? So um, the, the trade-off there is, you, what they try to do is make it ASIC resistant. And they do it by using hardware which is already commoditized and used in every computer. So that you don't have this leap of being able to commoditize dedicated hardware. It is already commoditized. You cannot compete in that market even as a large uh, mining, uh, mining hardware provider. Uh, the, the disadvantage, on the other hand, of, of having something which is not ASIC mineable is that you um, that every computer can mine. For, for Monero, that leads to the weird effect that if you visit um, Pirate Bay, which you should not, um, they are open with that. Uh, while you visit the website, they will mine uh, Monero in your browser. That's basically part of how you pay for the service. Yeah. I think that's fair, as long as they openly communicate that. But there are, of course, also other pages which don't. Uh, there is nothing that really prevents any website from, from mining Monero on, on your hardware. Yeah, that's that. And of course, uh, botnets are an issue. 
right? the, the largest botnets that were found were around 70,000 computers, if I remember correctly. I did have a number in a blog post that I wrote where I also touched this topic, a blog post on uh, Bitcoin Gold. You can uh, look it up there, I don't have the numbers um, on the top of my head. So which means that a lot of the political power does not go to the hardware manufacturers or to the miners, but goes to, to operators of botnets uh, who just put uh, random, um, random code onto your computer. Do you have any questions? So what I really like about this is hash is, a, is an incredibly simple concept. Right? You, have, you have any large block, it generates any short block, short enough so that you can compare it manually, but at the same time still large enough that there will not be uh, any, any collision ever for a proper hash function. And from that you can just generate the whole um, mining thing of Bitcoin. So easy concept leads to, leads to a lot of consequences. Another one of that type would be private public key cryptography, just signing and verifying stuff. And if you have those two concepts, that's all that you need for Bitcoin. There, are, there is no other cryptography than just hashes and um, signing and verifying. Are there any questions? Yeah. Um, but hashes and all this has been around like forever, right? Uh, I would guess 70s. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 So I mean, as the only thing that's sort of changed now with you know the blockchain industry exploding, is, is that only just that, that people have realised the potential applications of the existing technology, yeah. or has that actually been some advancements? Yeah, no. The concept of hashes has been around for yeah. a while, basically to to compare stuff to uh, also to if you, if you have a database, for example. Um, you usually don't put large objects into databases down to, in a key value store, you just put uh, hash into the key field. Right? There is, for hashes, there is a lot of, of, of use cases outside of Bitcoin. Um, but this concept of this idea, basically the, the very nice idea is uh, you, you can just do this threshold stuff. You don't care what the actual hash is in order to compare to something. You just demand that it's below a threshold in order to prove that, that efforts were spent. That's something which was new in the mid-90s. And this is also an idea which is then referenced in the Bitcoin white paper, uh, this hash cache idea, which uh, used in remakes. So this is rather new, I would say. But, but, but yeah, it's old concepts. The photography of Bitcoin is very boring. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing with, let's go, a few years down the line, right, with quantum computer, what, what's going to happen with all of these hashes and they're going to be solved in a way instantly, right? Uh, no. Um, this would be another nice talk. <laughs> uh, why you should not worry about quantum computers. Um, very briefly, uh, I mentioned that there are two parts. There is hashes and there is private public key cryptography. And it's unknown as of now if private public key cryptography is quantum safe. So it might be possible to go from public key to your private key, which should never be possible. Now, what's reasonably certain at this point is that hashes are quantum proof. This is one other use case of, of hashes in Bitcoin. Uh, your address is not really your public key. Your address is a hash of the public key. It's a different hash. It's not double two, double sharp 256. There is also some write 160 involved. 
And if you if you, if I know the address, um, then I cannot calculate the private key, even if quantum computers are around and commoditized. I would first need to go from the address to the public key, and then to the private key. And this this public key address, this is a hash, not not private public key cryptography. Uh, that is believed to be uh, quantum safe. So um, all that would change is um, if you want to get the, the public key to an address, you would still need to, to generate the numbers of a public key. So just, just writing the number into their registers of a computer. Uh, and then even if we don't count the calculation time of the address of the head, we would say that's free. Just writing the, the numbers of public keys into into the registers takes until you find until you you're likely to find one, that already takes more electricity than this sun ever spent or the sun ever generated. Right. So um, if quantum computers ever become a thing, which honestly in that commoditized way I don't see that happening within the next thirty years. So then all you would have to make sure is that your public key no longer can be public, right? Even your public key should be handled as private. That's fine. Um, in order to receive funds, you always have only have to, to get the address or give out the address. That's fine. Um, when you spend funds, you have to reveal the public key. So you should not do that more than once. You should don't. You should not reuse addresses. Right now, not reuse, you're reusing addresses as a privacy thing. In the future, it might become a um, security thing. Yeah. Would it be possible to both update or improve the hashing function and the PKI or uh, public-private key algorithms in the future of Bitcoin? Um, I believe so, and I believe it might even be possible to, to do it in via soft fork. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not a very strong thing. But all this is, I mean, right now we have a, um, a scripting language for, for Bitcoin, and the standard script is just prove that you own the private key corresponding to this public key via this method, or via this, um, this signing algorithm, validating algorithm. Um, what we could just do is, is include um, in a new opcode which does the same thing via a different um, verifier or signing signature verifying scheme. So what you would have to do then is just move your funds once, once to a new address. Uh, this would be a huge problem because um, there are old funds lying around, including those of Satoshi, one million Bitcoin, uh, which are unlikely to ever be moved. Um, the, and of those funds, we, we, you, we know the public key. This, this concept of using addresses instead of public keys has only been introduced in 2012, I believe, maybe 2011. So for the very first um, print, uh, blocks, we, we know the public keys. So those funds would be up for grabs at that point. So we might have to do a, uh, a soft fork that freezes those funds. Um, that's not nice um, towards Satoshi. But at the same time, putting it up for grabs to anybody is also not a nice thing. Um, but for every funds that are still like actively maintained, they would just need to be moved to a different type of, uh, of script. This episode was brought to you by Crypto Finance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. 
Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch.